Mad Men like can be summed up in like one tagline, which is like, "Why are men?" <laughs> like, like why are men like why is that something we do but um hello everyone this is alex and this is M. Welcome to the latest episode of The Good, The Bad, The Basic. This is the podcast for TV lovers, movie buffs, and binge watchers of all ages. On this podcast, we'll be discussing what we loved, what we hated, and what's just a bit problematic about the TV and movies that we're addicted to, and do a bit of rewriting where necessary. For much more exclusive content, become a show producer on Patreon and get access to after-the-episode outtakes, curated playlists, movie reviews, music video retrospectives, and so much more. Join the GBB family at patreon.com forward slash good bad basic. Today, we premiere the ninth season of The Good, The Bad, The Basic, Historical Dramas. This season, Alex and I will be taking a deep dive into some of the most successful and compelling historical dramas to have ever been televised. We'll be discussing the writing, acting, direction, cinematography, and of course, the accuracy, or lack thereof, of the period attire. We're debuting our ninth season with none other than the most successful historical television drama of all time and one of the most groundbreaking series to ever air on any network, AMC's Mad Men. Mad Men, short for Madison Men, is a series about a group of advertisers working for the Sterling Cooper Advertising Agency on Madison Avenue in Manhattan, New York. At the series' debut, we're placed in the year 1960 and quickly in the life of the protagonist, Don Draper, a savvy advertising executive and shameless womanizer. Over the course of a decade, we see how Don and his colleagues, associates, and lovers evolved to be better or worse people. How did mad men manage to take such an eventful time in history and such a seemingly unglamorous line of work, reduce it into individual stories, and turn it into television gold? Stay tuned. everyone here are some critical details about Mad Men. The series is an American period drama. It was created by Matthew Weiner. It aired from July 19th, 2007 until May 17th, 2015 on the AMC network for seven seasons and a total of 92 episodes. The series stars John Hamm as Don Draper, our protagonist, Elizabeth Moss as Peggy Olsen, uh, originally Don's secretary and protege, and later an advertising exec in her own right. Vincent Carthizer as Peter Campbell, a.k.a. Pete, another ad exec at the company. January Jones as Elizabeth Betty Draper, later Betty Francis, Don's first wife. Christina Hendricks as Joan Holloway, later Joan Harris, the office manager. John Slattery as Roger Sterling, one of the two senior partners of the agency and Don's former mentor. 
Aaron Staten as Kenneth Cosgrove, a.k.a. Ken. Rich Sommer as Harold Crane, a.k.a. Harry. Allison Bree as Gertrude Campbell, originally Gertrude Vogue, a.k.a. Trudy, Pete's wife, who's a recurring character from seasons one through seven. Kiernan Shipka as Sally Beth, a recurring character in seasons one through four and then a series regular in uh, five through seven. She is Dawn and Betty's eldest child. Maxwell Huckleby in season one. Aaron Hart in seasons one and two. Jared S. Gilmore in seasons three and four. And Mason Vale Cotton in seasons five through seven as Robert Draper, a.k.a. Bobby, Don and Betty's oldest son. They have a third child, Eugene, but um, he's not going to be mentioned here because he was played by a variety of actors, and he says exactly two lines for the entire series. <laughs> um, Robert Morse as Bertram Cooper, a.k.a. Bert. He's another one of the senior partners. He's a recurring character, seasons one and two, and a series regular seasons three through seven. Jared Harris as Lane Price, a recurring character in season three and a series regular seasons four and five. Christopher Stanley as Henry Francis, recurring in seasons three and four, a series regular in seasons five through seven. He is Betty's second husband. Jessica Pare as Megan Draper, recurring character in seasons four, regular in seasons five through seven. She is Dawn's second wife. Michael Gladys as Paul Kinsey, recurring seasons one through three, regular in season five. J.R. Ferguson as Stan Rizzo, uh, recurring in season four, regular in seasons five through seven. He's an art director at Sterling Cooper Draper Price and Peggy's final love interest on the show. Mark Moses as Herman Duck Phillips. Ben Feldman as Michael Ginsberg, Brian Batt as Salvatore Romano, a.k.a. Sal, a series regular from seasons one through three. Tiana Paris as Don Chambers, a recurring character seasons five through seven, Don's secretary, and later um, Joan's chosen replacement as office manager. Maggie Siff as Rachel Menken-Katz. Deborah Lacey as Carla, the Drapers' housekeeper and unofficial nanny, a recurring character from seasons one through four. And last but certainly not least, Melinda Hamilton Page as Anna Draper, the real Lieutenant Don Draper's unofficial widow, a recurring character from seasons two through four and arguably the most influential and important woman in Don Draper's life. So let's get into it. First season, 13 episodes. I, I'm such a fan of these brief episodes. No fillers, no bullshit. Let's right. get into it. <laughs> so before, I know, like, do so I, I do want to put this in a bit of cultural context because Mad Men has, like, been off the air now for, like, so the first episode premiered, like, 13 years ago, and so much of, like, the television landscape has, like, changed since then It because it, it is, like, an important pop cultural artifact. The story goes, like all great Hollywood stories, is that, so Matthew Weiner, the creator, was somebody who had been in L.A., like, as a writer for, like, he, like, said something close to, like, 30 to 40 years, or, like, 30, yeah, like, over 25 years or something, had never sold a show, like, was broke still, was, like, working 
as like sort of like on the lower tiers of like the like the the business and the system and just never it never it could never happen and then you know of course all the stars aligned like they do they do and mad men happened and then it ended up of course being this humongous hit right mm-hmm. so when the show premiered it was like, it was one of those things... It was also, like, when the show premiered, it was also one of those things where um, it wasn't... Like, it was AMC's, like, first sort of... Because AMC, like, was used to... They showed, like, classical movies, like, on the channel. They would show, like, old movies. And this was AMC's, like, after... Because Breaking Bad doesn't premiere until, what? Oh... I think Breaking Bad premieres in 2009. yeah. yeah. Breaking Bad doesn't premiere till 09. So this was like... And I know Mad- The Walking Dead definitely premieres, like, maybe, I think, in 2010, 2011. Yeah. So Mad Men okay. was, like, AMC's first sort of, like... it's the It was, like, their first thing of, like, okay, like, television's changing, the landscape is changing, we're gonna go out on a limb and, like, have, like, a scripted series... And so, uh, so, and then, and thus Mad Men was born and it was like, it was a sleeper hit. Like, I think the first, it like after the first season, I think second and third season was like when it became like a big, like a cultural sort of force because, um, first season happened and, and it, it ran off of like critics really loved it. And like, granted Mad Men would ultimately become, like, a critical and commercial success. But, like, critics really loved it. And, like, critics kept, like, talking about this show. Um, and, like, the, and how great it was. I'm not gonna lie. Like, I remember I first watched it and I thought it was boring as shit. <laughs> and, like, I didn't get it. Um, <laughs> but, and I think, in general, like, old, like, white people really loved the 60s. Like, they just do. Like, I don't know. It's, like, it's like their era. But um, now I definitely have, like, a deeper appreciation of, like, of this show. Because, like, in 2007, I was, like, still in high school. I was, like, whatever. Like, I'm bored. <laughs> um, now, I knew Mad Men was going to pop off immediately. Like, even that first season, it wasn't just critically well-received. Um it had a really high household rating, um, especially considering the channel. Because like you said, AMC was a channel that used to show old movies. AMC actually used to stand for American Movie Classics. And they were like the go-to channel for older movies, especially like if you were a fan of black and white American cinema. Um, like that era of like 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, 20s even. Um, yeah. So I knew if anyone could do this type of series justice, it would be AMC. I'm a big fan of vintage fashion. Anything from the 60s through the 80s is, like, my bag. Um, also, I was 22 when Mad Men premiered. And I had we had satellite at the time. And I used to see the commercials everywhere, not just on AMC, but on other, um, on other channels and other networks. And even some of the local stations were doing promo for Mad Men. And I watched the first few episodes. I don't know why I fell off. I was probably watching something much, much dumber and much worse written. 
Um, I ended up getting back into Mad Men when it came onto Netflix, but I remember watching those first two or three episodes and I was like, oh, this is going to be really popular. This right. is going to be really popular. Like I knew it was, I knew Mad Men would be a success. Sometimes, you know, you can just look at a trailer or watch a few episodes and know that something's going to hit or not going to hit. And Mad Men was one of those shows. I was like, if they keep their promo right and they keep the writing tight, which it really was, um, I knew that that show would be a success. And I think one of the reasons why I knew the show was going to be successful was because none of these people, I didn't know any of these people. I didn't know Elizabeth Moss, Peggy Olsen, Christina Hendricks. Um, I didn't recognize Vincent Carthizer because I really tried to block the Connor character from Angel out of my mind. Um, <laughs> so none of these people were the reason why I tuned in. Like Mad Men really was standing on its own two feet. So I had really high hopes for the show. And, um, I'm happy to say that, you know, they really did what they had to do with these seven seasons on the show. Right. So, yeah, Mad Men is also the show that definitively launched, like, John Hamm and Elizabeth Moss and Christina Hendricks and um, Vincent Carthizer and... uh, So many... I mean, I I don't want to say so many others. I think everyone on the show's done, like reasonably well after um i i think you could probably argue allison brie um but uh in january jones definitely launched january jones's career um because this was her first like thing um yeah and so and so it was it was really interesting and like and it's cool and and there were it's even watching the show now like so many of these actors it so many of, like, these actors are, like, these underdog sort of television actors um, that got to be on this really great commercial success. And uh, Matthew Weiner himself being, like, a, a sort of underdog in Hollywood at the time before before the show. Um, it's reflective of that. And, like, I, I think I, le- I enjoy, I think, that aspect of it. Because now a show like Mad Men would sort of probably, like, be gobbled up, like, mm-hmm. by... Um, like big names just because of how everything is now it, like it's cool for like the moment in time that it came in it's it's cool to see let's get into this this first season right right um again i say this all the time but the pilot is what's going to make or break you especially as since we've discussed there was no big household name none of these people were household names when at the show's debut right so this pilot had to hit even harder than any pilot had ever hit. Um, and I feel like I feel like it really did that. We got to know our core cast, the people who would be with us from seasons one through seven, and their personalities and their working relationships as well as their personal relationships fairly quickly, but in a way that doesn't feel rushed or doesn't feel forced. Um, we meet Don Draper, who's like an advertising executive at Sterling Cooper. We meet Roger Sterling. He's one of the founding um, partner sons, and he's a senior partner. We meet Peggy Olson, who is Don's new secretary. We meet Joan, who's the office manager. We learn uh, we we learn about the junior accounts manager Pete Campbell, who is engaged to Trudy. Uh, we meet Roger's wife Mona. We meet all of the key players. That this first season starts on the precipice of. Uh, the 1960 presidential election. They're also 
working with uh, Lucky Strike, Lucky Strike Cigarettes. And this is right in the era where more and more information was coming out that cigarettes were harmful, this, that, and the third. And we get to see who these people are very quickly. Very quickly in season one, we see Don cheating on his wife with an artist named Midge Daniels. And it's very, it's painted very unambiguously that this is not his first dalliance. This is not his first infidelity. This is just what, what he is. This is who he is. Don's wife, Betty, is dealing with numbness and pain in her hands. And the, her hands actually go numb when she's driving and it car, she, she crashes the, the family car. Um, and so Don finally allows her to see a therapist. Like, like a lot of people at that time, especially a lot of men, he was anti-mental health treatment. But then we we see, you know, just another way that Don violates his wife and his wife's trust. He goes behind her back and has her therapist report to him everything Betty says in their 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 supposedly private sessions. Right. It's like it's a huge violation. It's definitely it's setting like the tone and like setting um like what like sort of that era was and like how much husbands had sort of control over their wives. Absolutely. Um, and as the series progresses, we see that uh, infidelities aside, Don actually isn't as bad as most of the husbands of that time were even on the show, um, which is what's really frightening, right? That this would be considered not that bad <laughs> because there's so much worse out there at the time. Right. And like, we definitely <laughs> see the we see the, the, like, the gamut of, like, of men and stuff that, that do that, yeah. Now, another show would have dragged this on forever and kept this in the periphery and hinted at it forever, but Mad Men doesn't do that. We learn in season one that Don Draper is a fraud in the, the most literal legal definition of the word. He was a soldier who was drafted or to fight in Korea, and he was um, his his uh, superior was a lieutenant Donald Draper. There there was an explosion where they were stationed, and he was very he was injured, and Lieutenant Draper uh, was killed. And he switched their dog tags, and um, essentially took over Lieutenant Donald Draper's identity in order to leave the war and cultivate a better life for himself with this man's pedigree. And that's what he did. We meet his Dick Whitman's brother, Andy, this season. Um, Andy, who had seen him on the train when he dropped the body, he dropped Don Draper's body back to his home. And Andy was telling their parents, I see Dick, I see Dick on the train. And Andy had known all these years that his brother was alive and being told that his brother was dead. I'm pretty sure was one of the reasons why he fell into alcoholism, right? Your brother's body supposedly in the box, but you're seeing him standing right there on that train platform. Like, I would feel some type of way. But Andy never gave up on the idea that Dick was still alive, and he finds him. He finds him in season one playing this this lie of Don Draper, and he just wants his brother back. But Don's like, no, I have a new life, and there's no room for you in it. And he gives his brother $5,000 to leave and never come back. $5,000 in 1960 is like a smooth 80, 90,000 today. Yeah, it's a lot of money. So, 
so much money. Um, but we learn about his childhood very quickly. You know, he grew up during the Great Depression. His mother was a broth brothel prostitute. His stepmother was very religious and also an abuser. His father was an abuser and a swindler. He has like a really bad relationship with um, his parents. He didn't know his mother because Don was born a twin. And uh, he had a twin sister who died um, while his mother was giving birth. And his mom died shortly after giving birth to that sister. Um so, so he had, his, his life has been filled with trauma from the inception and it's not that we don't understand Don's situation, right? I think we can understand the desperation behind him doing what he did, but clearly he can't keep up this act without sacrificing the, the part of himself that's still good. And we see that for the duration of the series, like living this lie is, is, is really harmful to him on a psychological level. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's the interesting part. That's, like, sort of the the interesting construction of the show. Um, one, like, you know, Don essentially, with the switching of the dog tags, uh, he essentially horcruxes himself, right? To put it in some terms, like, maybe that feel <laughs> a bit better, right? He, he creates two of himself. Um... And that is, he is simultaneously Dick Whitman and Don Draper. And both of those sides uh, man, are, fight with themselves and, and fight with each other and manifest themselves in, in different ways throughout the run of the series. Right. And we see the more that he tries to deny Dick Whitman, and when we see glimpses of him as Dick Whitman, and we really only ever see Dick Whitman, the adult and seeing his relationship with Anna, um, Don Draper's wife, um, we see that that is the better part of him. And the more he tries to repress Dick, the worse of a person he becomes. Uh, the drinking, the smoking, the infidelities, these are all part of the Don Draper persona, right? Well, I, I actually do think Dick shows up uh, in more places beyond Anna. I do think Dick, is is present in, in other sort of in glimpses and spaces and time um throughout the run but but most but yeah oh yeah no that's true what you're saying is completely true i just mean that um it's only with anna where not only does does dick show up but that he is like verbally dick right if that makes sense like even when we see dick show up in other times people still think they're talking to Don, if that makes sense. Right, yeah. And that's another part of the show. Like, the acting is really from the... The 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 acting from, from John Hamm is really quite masterful, um, as well as, as the writing is really masterful to sort of illuminate that, that part or that idea. For me especially in this first season where we're just starting off, we don't know these characters and we don't really know these actors. I feel Mad Men is a testament to one of my theories that people do their best work when they're hungry. Um, like nobody knows us. This has to hit like Matthew Weiner's been trying to get a hit for who knows how long right. these people have been trying to get a hit for who knows how long mortgages do credit card payments are due. Right. <laughs> and you can, you can see that passion and that drive and everything, everything that was put out was quality. And 
I'm not the, trying to throw shade, but I just don't see this level of quality coming through with, from someone who's already a household name. Because the character, Don Draper himself, is someone who exists very much in a space of want of wanting people to think well of him and seeking approval. And then when you're that actor who knows that you 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 have to to impress people with this performance to keep your career alive, that only makes that character so much more profound, at least in my opinion. So let's talk about some besides the flashbacks of Don's life. Let's get into more of what happens in season one. Peggy has a one night stand with Pete. Uh, the evening of his bachelor party, right? Right before he marries Shruti. And what's super interesting about this is that Peggy ends up pregnant. Um, and no one in the office, including Peggy herself, seems to know except Joan. <laughs> Joan looks at Peggy and it's very clear that she knows Peggy is pregnant. But Peggy doesn't know. Nobody in the office knows. Everybody just thinks Peggy's getting fat. Right. Um, Peggy, as, as a character... Uh starts off as a secretary. She's specifically Dawn's secretary. And um yeah, that this is something that happens. I don't this, this doesn't happen in the pilot, right? It happens No, no, that is episode. that happens in season 1, but not yeah. in the pilot, no. <laughs> um yeah, so throughout the course of uh and this is like and she gets pregnant after she becomes like after they sort of, like, tap her to be a copywriter, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah, she's, like, she's kind of, like, Don's protege at this point because she starts off as a secretary, as you said, and he sees a talent in her. And the interesting thing about Don is, and I think this is 100% from the way that he was raised as, for lack of a better term, poor white trash, um, he's definitely willing to give chances to people. And we even seen his relationship with his wife, Betty, that he's incredibly generous while she can be a bit stingy. Yeah. We see, we see this pretty often. So he sees this talent in Peggy and she becomes something of his protege. And you and I have talked about this, like how on a lesser show, Don would have been in relationships with Peggy or in relationships, particularly with Joan, but that actually never happens on Mad Men, which I thought was really, really brilliant. Um, when Peggy does turn up pregnant, um, and no one realizes that she's pregnant, even Peggy herself. I think it speaks volumes about the era and how we view women. Um, I honestly think that a lot of the men in the office didn't think Peggy was attractive enough to get a man to get her pregnant. And Peggy herself, you know, trying to prove herself was probably too consumed with her work to notice that she was, you know, probably hadn't had a period in X amount of months, right? Because she's really trying to make this happen for herself and move up from being a secretary. Um, we really, really get to know these people and their motivations and their ambitions really, really well. And this first season culminates with Peggy going to the hospital with stomach pain and being told that she's in, she's pregnant and she's currently in labor. Like, imagine finding out you're pregnant as you're in labor. Mm. I've seen that episode on TLC. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like, I didn't know I was pregnant. Wasn't that a yeah. whole series? Yeah, it's like a whole, <laughs> a whole show. <laughs> it was, it was, most of it was just, like, white girls who, like, were cheerleaders and stuff being like, I didn't know I was pregnant. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but this happened to her, and um, when she has baby, she refuses to hold the baby, and she gives it up for adoption, because Peggy's very clear at this point about what she wants. She wants this career. She does not want to be a single mom. She doesn't want to be a stay-at-home mom. She doesn't want to derail her opportunities, and 
she doesn't want to have this baby by a man who at this point is married. Pete and Trudy are married by now. (laughs) Right. After the fact, there's this, I think, in the same season, there there is like a there's a flashback. There there's a flashback of Don because Don gets her from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those rare moments that we see Dick Whitman, right? Um Peggy's just had this baby and Don like you know knows and because like I said he's there to to take her home but um he says you know, this doesn't have to define you. You can shut this out and it can be something that's never happened. Um, all you have to do is like, you know, he essentially, like I said, he he teaches her how to horcrux herself. Um, and she does. She does it. And it's, it's actually, this, it's a really beautiful, masterfully written, great scene. But it's, it's so... Um, it's heavy, but it's it's excellent, and and I I can't do it justice, but it's it's perfect when it happens. Yeah, it's a really great scene. Um, yeah, he basically teaches Peggy how to live with this. Um, now, unlike unlike Don, she's not she's not lying about it or anything. It's just it's just her secret. Um, and it's a secret that she does eventually divulge to one other person in season two. Um, but you know, life goes on, like he said, and she puts this behind her. She's not trying to be this baby's mom and Peggy doesn't want this baby. And I think this, her having this baby and like you said, Don being there for her really sets the tone of their relationship because they definitely butt heads in the future. But I really feel like this was a really great relationship besides his relationship with Anna. I feel like his relationships with Peggy and Joan are the most solid relationships that Don has on Mad Men. Right. Definitely. I agree with that. Um, they're the purest inner interactions he has like with the women on the show. Um, and it's interesting because even the, con- like, Something that I also think the show does like really well is even just this construction of of Peggy and Joan. And Peggy and Joan are like two sides of the same coin. And that also is illuminated like in their struggles and how they struggle in this world and like in this era and and who they are. Right. I think Joan is much more aware than Peggy that she is, for lack of a better term, a victim of her her outer packaging she knows what she is and who she is and what she has to offer but she also knows that men and women alike will always judge her by her face and body first and that they'll probably do the same with peggy joan is incredibly passive aggressive and snippy with peggy at first but over the course of the series they actually develop a really really good friendship um which, you know, again, on an, any other show, they would have had these two at odds or made them like arch nemeses, you know? But Mad Men doesn't do that, um, which I really greatly appreciated. Yeah, um, they develop a, a deep respect for one another pretty early on in the series. Right, right, right. It's not one of those things that like dragged on forever. <laughs> um, but in the series, Um, somewhere in the series finale, either the last episode or the episode prior to that, Don finds out that his brother Adam hung himself. Um, Basically, he sent Don a package 
with things from their childhood, photographs, dicks, dog tags, uh, things like that. He sends the package off to Don and he hung himself. And of course, Don feels responsible probably because, you know, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for poor Adam. And so now that's just another load of pain and trauma that he has to bury. Because how can you talk to your wife or anybody for that matter about your brother's suicide when you're not even supposed to have a brother? <laughs> like Don Draper doesn't have any family. This is something that's discussed in uh, seasons two and three as well, or season two specifically, that there was no one on Don's side when he and Betty got married, no family, no friends. So you cut your family out of your life. You can't exactly go to anyone for sympathy now or for comfort. Um, so his brother Adam's death is like, it's, it's, it's weighing heavy on him, but he can't share with anybody. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why Don does such self-destructive things, the affairs, the smoking, the drinking, because he needs a way to deal with his feelings. Um, and since he's lied to everybody, <laughs> um, no one can really offer him comfort or companionship in the way that he needs. But um, what do you think of the first season of Mad Men? Good, bad, or basic? Um, it's good. It's very good. You know, there's so much that like we that happens. Uh, I love all these characters. I love everybody at the ad agency. Everybody's really well constructed, and there is a a beautiful vision it's just like it's clearly like a show that like has has vision like it's it's a solid good from me yeah i would give it a good as well um and as far as the period attire it's absolutely on point i knew amc would get it together but it's on point i'm seeing 1960s fashion appropriately constructed with the colors and the cuts and the styles and the silhouettes that were popular at the time and seeing them specifically constructed for every individual character's body type. And, you know, Betty, Joan, Peggy, Trudy all have different body types. And seeing that, like, seeing the, you know, well-tailored 1960s clothes was such a feast for the eyes. I mean, it's kind of hard to mess up 1960s fashion. Like, it was just 60 years ago. Get it together. But um, seeing it come to life on Mad Men... And seeing it like in a modern era on modern people was really, really cool to watch. So for me, just the 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 costuming alone gave it like a good plus for me. So let's talk about season two. Season two is also 13 episodes. And season two takes place from February 1962 to October 1962. So it's taking place almost... Well, like about 15 months from the closing of the last season, it opens on Valentine's Day. And last season, um, Betty had found out that Don and her therapist were conspiring against her and had left the home and he'd come home to an empty house. So 15 months later, uh, uh, Peggy's back at work. Only Don knows about her pregnancy. Her family thinks that he was the father because he was the only non-family member to come see her at the hospital. And meanwhile, Pete and his wife, Trudy, are having trouble conceiving. And she wants to consider adoption, but he absolutely refuses. Right. That's that's where we, we sort of kick it off. Um, season two. Season two is great. Like So like we said, season one is all about... 
And like, so we know that Don's been like cheating on Betty with like a, a with so many different women. Um, but season two is when um, there's like a client at Sterling Cooper and the client is like these like potato chips and then there and there's this like famous comedian at the time uh and Don starts having an affair with the famous comedian's wife and then the comedian lets and the comedian is like really obsessed with Betty um and the comedian basically tells Betty that like Don's been sleeping with his wife and um that's when Betty like sort of really finds out and that Don's been cheating on her and, and their marriage fractures further. Right. I think partially because he was always good enough to make sure to keep his infidelities in the city, right? Or as one-offs or, you know, vacation um, uh, expenditures, whatever. She didn't really know that Don had been cheating. We, the audience, knew from how easily he cheated on her with Midge in season one that he'd probably done this many times before. But this season, he cheats on her with that client's wife. Uh, The comedian is Jimmy, and his wife is Bobby. And, um... And I'm pretty sure Jimmy told Betty in the hopes that Betty would have a revenge affair with him, (laughs) to be honest with you. Um... Yeah, because he's like, he's, I got that he's obsessed with her in like a really creepy way. Like, it's not in a way that's like normal. It's definitely like in a way of like, I want to like, fuck you. And it's and poor Betty, like, is just sort of like having to just, I mean, she just has to deal with it because that's the era. Like, it's, it's the vibe, like, she just, she just kind of has to deal with it. Right, right. It's 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 a mess. It's but a mess. um Betty Betty finds out and the thing is Betty, you know, the thing with the therapist was obviously a huge violation. But prior to that, Betty thought that she was in a very stable marriage. And now it's like her world is crumbling down around her. And she's not the only one in a messed up relationship at this point. Paul, the office gossip tells everyone that Joan is 31 and you know she's really feeling her age because 31 might as well be 40 in 1960 um she gets engaged to Dr. Greg Harris and Greg is a very attractive guy he seems like a very kind and mild-mannered guy and for the most part he is but and this is something that Mad Men um uh, and other shows like it don't get credit for, but I think they should. Even though he's attractive and educated and mild-mannered and nice, Greg is still a rapist, and he rapes Joan. And you can be all those things and still be a rapist. Right. So, uh, this is like, and this is like when they're dating. So, yeah, they're they're dating in in. Greg is like a very insecure person and and it's it's tragic. What makes it particularly tragic is um Joan is somebody who is uh str- like she's struggling to she's doing the things that like she's supposed to do even though she doesn't quite want them. Um 
but she knows like it's expected of her as a woman. And so she's trying to find her way. Um, I think not necessarily survival, but trying to find a way to be like happy um, with, with what's happening. And, and it's, and it's tried and it's just, it sucks because, and it sucks in particular because earlier in the season, uh, Joan essentially tries to do what, Peggy does and and sort of flip her position um with the advent of television you know Harry who's like somebody who works at the firm uh basically dubs himself as like a media department head and uh Joan and it's this whole and it's so it like it guts me like it guts me when I watch it but um Basically, Harry can't, like, keep up with, like, the scripts. Because the whole thing, like, part of his job as, like, he's... Since he just gave himself this brand new position that, like, doesn't even... That didn't really exist before. um, Part of his job is to read all the scripts, like, that... Of all the television shows that are airing. And then basically, like, circle and figure out where they can... um, where they can do like product placement essentially uh, within the, within the television show and then like at the commercial break. And so it's, it's a lot of work. And so Joan does it and Joan is like really good at it. And Joan like basically has this like glimmer of hope that she'll be able to like flip her sort of situation and, finally like utilize her brain in like a really real way um that be, that she's always sort of had and they take it away from her um they they and she does the job and she does it really well and then they take it away from her once they hire like this other random guy and it sucks cuz she even has to like once they hire this new guy she has to teach him how to do the job that she's already been doing Mm, we hate it and it we hate it and it's it's so devastating and it's um but it's an example of just sort of and nobody thinks to let joan have the job because like everybody just sees her in this very tunnel vision specific way yeah and so so when so when she gets with greg it's just it's that's what makes it even more tragic it's like she she understands that she can be more but she's still sort of doing this, but she's trying to, I guess, do the thing that's expected of her, hoping that maybe she'll be able to do the thing that's more. It's, you know, she's stuck. It's it's a catch-22, and she's stuck between this rock and a hard place, but um, it's just the way it is, and it's, it's, it's just devastating to see. Right. Um, her getting with Greg was absolutely this. Well... They don't appreciate me for my brain, so I might as well cash in on my other assets, right? Right, but I mean, she doesn't even <laughs> cash in, and she, but she doesn't even cash in with the right person because well, no, like, we haven't talked about that yet. <laughs> like she doesn't, because like so by now, as the audience, like we know that Joan and Roger have been having this like extended affair. Roger, who is like. The, the big like account manager at Sterling Cooper, like I mean, he like Roger Sterling, his name is on the door, and Roger's like incredibly wealthy, 
like incredibly, incredibly wealthy. And um she Joan never like cashes in on it. She she and I get why, but at the same time I'm like, why not? Like Get that man to, like, give you some <laughs> coin, girl. Like, what are you doing? Uh, like, and and then she misses the boat because then Roger ends up marrying uh, his secretary, Jane. Yeah, yeah. Jane starts off as, like, Don's secretary, and then, like, she's, like, all of 20 years old, and then Roger scoops her up and wives her. Um, and I think maybe this is where Joan drew the line. Like, she would sleep with Roger occasionally, but he was married to Mona, and I think more than anything... Um, more than wanting to catch a man, Joan cares about a lot about her reputation because she already knows that people think that she's a slut. A lot of the people in the office do or that she's just a pair of walking tits and ass and she doesn't want to prove them right. And I think that's why she never really wanted to go public with Roger. But, you know, she gets engaged to Greg and they're living together and um, she's tending to him and she's being the good fiance and she's a working girl at that and she's doing all the right things and saying all the right things, but he's insecure and nothing's going to change that. And he actually rapes her at work, which is a power move on several different levels. He's taking advantage of the fact that he's her fiance. He's taking advantage of the fact that she can't scream because it'll embarrass her more than him, Right. Because she's at mm-hmm. her place of work. She's in her boss's office. Um, she's taking advantage of the fact that um, he's already had her put in her resignation, right? Um, and she doesn't want to be humiliated in front of these people. And she knows that because she's put in her resignation that she's going to be financially dependent on him. So when Greg does this, it's a power move in every step of the work. Step. And what triggers this? They run into Roger, and Roger makes one offhand comment. I thought you didn't like French food. And apparently, Roger, knowing that what what kind of food she does and doesn't like is enough to set this man off. Just as, like, a cover-all and a caveat, like, a lot of the direction... uh, The direction in this uh, series is, like, pitch perfect. It's so... Like, it's so good. Like, all of it is so perfect. Like, it's really, like... It's not fit. Like, I know, like, people were sweating. Like, I know people were mad as hell, like, when Mad Men came out because it's kind of unfair, like, how good this, like, how good every, like, aspect of this show is. But speaking to, like, the scene itself, like, it's, it's directed, it's also directed really quite masterfully because, like, it's so... It's directed in the way that, like, you know, when you see, when you see um, a kid, like, about to fall off the jungle gym, or, like, you see, like, an incoming train about to crash into, like, a car, like, you know it's coming, and, like, you you can't stop it, and, like, or, and, it, and it's not gonna stop, like, that scene feels exactly like that, like, and it has all the sort of dread of it, because it's the way, like, he says the French food, he's like, oh, like, how does your, your boss know that you like French food? Like, it's very menacing, and, and, um, that actor plays it so well, because it's, it's, he rides that line, perfect line of, like, menacing and, um, innocuous, and it's, mm. it's, it's great. It's perfect. 
I I completely agree. Even her response was that of someone. It it, it comes off lighthearted to someone who's not really paying attention, but it's really obviously her trying to diffuse a situation that she knows is going to be bad, right? Right. And like can, trying to calm him. <laughs> right. You're she's you're trying to calm. She's trying to calm him, and she does it and. She does it at, like, every single intersection. By the way, Christina Hendricks's Joan is is so perfect uh, as well, like, in, the constr- in her sort of construction of this character. I mean, down to um, her, the way she talks, like, it, like, it doesn't escape me that Christina Hendricks sort of puts on this, like, Marilyn Monroe-adjacent type voice. She sort of talks like that through throughout the run of the show. And it's it's really it's it's sort of like the icing on the cake to like the the Joan character and, and like just like the way she walks and like the acting is is Christina Hendricks in this role is just like really, really great. Um she deserved all her Emmys and her Emmy nominations that she got for it. So shout out to you, girl. She really did do that. Um the Joan character all of the women on the show, now that I think about it, um, probably not Trudy, but definitely the Jones, the Peggy's, the Betty's are very soft-spoken, which I also thought was great direction because that was a sign of the times. It was considered unladylike to speak loudly and raise your voice, especially with men. Like the thing, like, and you'll see this with the Peggy character most often, her male counterparts are belittling to her or trying to dismiss her. And she'll, her her tone will actually become softer and sweeter as she's trying to get her point across. Like she doesn't like slam things down and start yelling at them, <laughs> right? And and another I think great point, and I and this like might just in another great sort of aspect is like over the course of the seasons, like it'll change each season. Like first season, like Peggy is extremely soft spoken, and then like she'll you know, get a bit louder in the second, get a bit louder in the third, get a bit louder in the fourth until she's speaking at like full voice by the end of this, by the sort of end of the series, um, which is, you know, so perfect, really great, really smart. It's a really smart thing. Right. It is really, really clever. Um, this season, we also get to uh, meet Anna uh, Lieutenant Draper's unofficial widow. We say unofficial because widow, like wife, is a legal title. And she doesn't have the title of widow because according to the U.S. government and the U.S. military, Donald Draper is still alive. And um, in doing what he did, Don essentially robbed her of her husband's military benefits as well as his pension. So we see that she lives in like a nice little house, a cute little bungalow in California, and he set her up there. He's been taking care of her, as he should, for all of these years, ever since she found him. And they have a really good relationship. This is a person that he can be fully himself with at all times. We learn uh, about, but basically it's the purest friendship that he has, specifically because it's honest on both ends. The Cuban Missile Crisis takes off by the time he comes back home. And back at home, Betty finds out that she's pregnant. She does something that I did not understand when I first watched this episode, but I understand it 
after giving it some thought. She finds out that she's pregnant. She has this very roundabout conversation with her doctor alluding to abortion, decides not to take that option. And then she goes to a bar and has a one-night stand with a stranger. And I'm like, sis, you just found out you're pregnant. Why would you have a one-night stand? But then I realized, if you're going to cheat on your husband as a woman, that's like in the 60s, that's probably the best time to do it, right? Because if you're already pregnant, that means you can't get pregnant with a stranger's baby. Right. And I felt, I was so happy for her when she took that revenge sex though. I was like, yes, girl, you better get that. <laughs> like you better, you better do that. You better let you, you know, let that man know that you have options. I mean, if she was really trying to get revenge, she's like at least 50 people short. So, <laughs> no, so still. I like the honest. <laughs> listen, listen. And listen, I think when Betty finds out, though, when, it's so sad. Like, it's so tragic when Betty finds out that Don cheated on her. Because, like, she... Betty is, like... Like, like Betty just did everything she was told she was supposed to do. And that man still cheated. And then, like, it's also tragic. Because, like, Betty really loves Don for, like, whatever reason. Like, she really does love him. And... There's a scene that is so, like, like I mean, it's so sad. Like, she's going through his stuff. She's trying to find proof. Like, she's trying to find proof that he cheated. And um, she can't find anything because it's Don and he's covered his tracks so well. Um, and she, and he comes home and he finds her going through, uh, he finds her going through his stuff and she's on the floor and she's just like so broken and exasperated because by the way, this is when he's still sort of like gaslighting the shit out of her. And he's like, I've never cheated on you. I don't know what you're talking about. And mm. she's crumpled up on the floor and she's like, I, she's like, why are you doing this to me? I would never do this to you. Like, don't, don't do this. And I'm just like, Oh, Betty, no. It's so sad. I feel for Betty. I feel I feel a lot of like things for Betty. I empathize with her deeply. Right. Oh, Betty. She's I have to remind myself that she doesn't see the Don that we see. She doesn't see the philander. She doesn't see the person that drinks too much. She always only drinks in moderation in her presence, right? She doesn't see the scheming and the lies. She sees the considerate husband, the considerate father, uh, the good provider, the person who's always so proud of her and always wants to show her off. That's what she sees, right? I get why she loves Dawn because up until, um, you know, this season... Um, he'd been lying to her so effectively for so long. Right, that's true. He does. He he he's very good at like lying to her. And you know what? That's a good point that you bring up. Like you're you're right. Like he's she only knows the version of Don that like is so proud to show her off. Like you know what I mean? And in her mm -hmm. mind, like I can see why she like equates that like the fact that he he loves to show her off he, like she equates that with love even though that's not really what it is right right and like and he's not like the other husbands on the show like <laughs> greg um he's the kind of husband 
who likes when other people look at his wife and other people compliment his wife. He doesn't feel put off by it. He feels so proud to be with her, um, to say that she is his wife. And, you know, um, when she falls asleep with a cigarette lit, he puts it out. When she falls asleep with a wine glass in her hand, he takes it away from her and tucks her in. Um, when she wants to decorate the house, he lets her do whatever she wants. Um, you know, when they're dealing with their kids, he always listens to her opinion and her perspective. Um, so it's one of those things I can easily understand why she's like, okay, well, I guess this is what love is. This is what a marriage is. And she really had the rug pulled off from under her hard. <laughs> right. And I think when you consider Betty, when we, when we meet Betty's family. And they just look good together. And I think this is something that it, it matters now. People don't don't verbalize it as much, but they look like they're like they belong together. Another couple that I say I can say this about are Pete and Trudy, um, especially in that third season when they go to Roger's party and they're dancing together, and Pete and Trudy are cutting a rug. Right? Mm-hmm. It, they just look like such a perfect fit. Um, the, he, she just looks like the type of woman he would be with. And we know that that matters a lot to Don in cultivating this persona of the perfect man with the perfect wife and the perfect life. Right. Like he right. cares a lot about what people think about the woman on his arm. And that's a problem. <laughs> he wants his cake and he, and, and eat it too. Um, it's it, Rachel, Rachel Katz is, a a woman who we meet in first season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rachel is someone who we meet in first season who is the owner and operator of her family's department store. And she, uh, they don't like each other at first, but um, she is somebody who would ideally be like a really, like I guess now in modern times would be a great partner for Dawn. Like she's ambitious, she's very smart, she has her own stuff going on, you know. Betty, as much as I love Betty, is, is someone who's always like waiting for him, and I and that's part of the appeal for Don and and Betty is Betty's always going to be there. Betty's always waiting on him. She's waiting for him to 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 come and be with her, and and she will invite him in very warmly and tell him, you know, he's smart and pretty all day long without any pushback. Uh, Rachel is not that person, you know, she's like, I don't know, you're kind of full of shit. Like, um, you know, she can think she thinks in the same way that he does. And he likes that, but he's also, you know, intimidated. He's intimidated by it and he doesn't like, he doesn't really want that. He doesn't want somebody who's constantly make him think or make or push him to be better or, or be demanding of him in any significant way that would force him to change his character. Right. Right. And I think that's the, you hit the nail on the head there. He doesn't want someone that's going to hold him accountable. Even when Betty attempts to, because like you said, Betty's always waiting for him. So when she's, he keeps her waiting for too long and she hits him with the, Don, where have you been? He has his little tantrums and storms out of the house, right? Right. Like, he likes the fact that Betty's waiting for him, but then he ends up presenting her for that as well. And Betty's not a stupid woman, not by a long shot. She has a lot of opinions. She has a lot of hobbies and interests. She has a degree in anthropology. She said all of that to the side 
to make Don and the children her focus, which is what he wanted. But when you're trying to turn a woman into a housewife, you need to come correct as a husband. And he doesn't want to do that part. <laughs> right, right. And so so season two ends with um, uh, Don and with, like, like you said, with this, like, one-night stand and with Don and Betty sort of tentatively um re- t- tentatively like uh reuniting um and making peace as as a couple um what are you what do you have for season two good bad or basic oh really quickly i think it's re- excellent even better than season one which is a huge feat but i'm gonna tell you what made takes it from good to excellent for me and it's the scene um towards the end of season two i think it's that last episode actually where Pete declares his love for Peggy and Peggy finally tells him about her pregnancy and about giving away their son for adoption. And the that look of absolute devastation on Vincent Carthizer's face is easily like top five acting that he did on that show. And that's what made that season take it, took it from good to excellent. Like he deserved all the nominations for that, all the awards, take it, take it all. Excellent, excellent season. What about you? Good, bad or basic? Um, it's, I'm at the same point. Like, it's, it's really excellent. Um, there's so many things that happen this season that are so great. Like you said, there, there's that gut puncher of a scene, uh, with Peggy and Pete. Um, there's, we deal with, like, uh, we learn more about, like, the Salvatore, uh, or the Salvatore character who we learn is, like, closeted. Granted, we learn in the pilot that he's closeted. It's very obvious, but um, we deal more with it in season two. Uh, and season two is just a great ride. Um, I love it. It's great. What I enjoy about these shows, period pieces, and especially that talk about like closeted characters, um, shows like uh, Mad Men and even Pose, which is a period piece, um, is that. What's obvious to us now is someone being in the closet wasn't obvious then. Right. No, exactly. I agree. I mean, it's because it's wild. Like, (laughs) he's like, because Sal, 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 he's like an illustrator. And when he, there's like a part where he, he brings up this, like, he illustrates like this ad for I think Lucky Strike, and the ad is of like a man who, uh, who's half dressed, like lounging on a hammock, <laughs> and he's like, and he tells Don, he's like, oh my neighbor, quote unquote, my neighbor posed for that. He posed for me, and I'm like, sir, why are you volunteering this information? <laughs> it's crazy how all these repressed feelings are presenting in his work. I mean, right? Uh, and I, th- I think that's the point. And that's sort of like the brilliance of this show and, and the subtlety of it. But um, season three. Season three, let's go. Season three. All right. This season opens from uh, April 1963 to December um, 1963. So it takes off about six months from where the last season left off. And this is where we... This season, we fully delve into... 
Sal's uh, sexual orientation. Now, Sal is married, by the way, obviously to a woman. It's the 60s. Um, oh, he yes, Dawn, his wife. Oh, my God. Oh, I feel so bad for her. We hate it. We hate it. No one deserves to be a beard without their consent. I'm going to just say that. Um, Don and Sal go to Baltimore on a business trip. Now, the interesting thing about Sal is they don't showcase him in the way that a lot of gay gay male characters have been showcased in other forms of media, which I think is a good thing. I think this this show really did him justice in that regard. He's not that like closeted gay guy who's like super aggressive with other men in private. Every single interaction Sal has with another man, they are pursuing him. Um, even this right. bellboy. They're in the hotel and this bellboy comes to fix his air conditioning and like literally pushes up on him hard. And they're in Sal's room and Don is in his room with a flight attendant and a fire alarm is pulled. And as he and the the flight attendant are walking down the fire escape, he sees Sal and this bellboy getting dressed in the room as he tries to call Sal out to, to get out of his room. And he doesn't, he, he sees Sal, Sal sees him. It's very obvious what's going on. But Don, to his credit, doesn't bring it up again. Instead, he brings up the ad for what they're working on, London Fog Raincoats. And the ad tagline is, limit your exposure, which is obviously a double entendre. And his way of telling Sal, don't let this shit get out. Right. It's it's very clever. Um also, shout out to one one thing that I will give Don credit for is like Don is the king of like minding his own fucking business. Mm, we love it. We love like, it. Listen, when you got that many secrets, you can't be putting other people on blast. <laughs> like Don is just like I'm gonna mind my own fucking business. Like that shit is like not like if it has nothing to do with me. Like I'm not in that. Like I don't care. And I really respect that because. Had it been anybody else, like Sal, like Sal would have been outed and then kicked out, and um, and we see it because so season three is when the the show really starts to um, lean into the sort of great change and upheaval that I think is the hallmark of the '60s, and why I think so many people uh, always gravitate to this period in like in U.S. history. Um, cause there's so much going on and the ad agency ends up inadvertently like is hiring like newer, younger copywriters. Um, and they end up hiring this European, um, guy who is gay and like, he's out like, and very casual about it. And like the office sort of like, I mean, they're all super homophobic, but like, you know, yeah, they like don't really know like what to make of it. And it's it's interesting and it's an interesting dynamic to to observe. Absolutely. And, you know, if if you're going to get busted by anyone, let it be Don Draper, because nobody in that office can hold water. Paul talks about everybody to everybody. Right. Um, we know Pete would have put him on blast because Pete f- Pete found out about Don's identity in season one and tried to blackmail him by taking this information to Burt Cooper. Remember? I was about to say, like, have you met Pete? <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Pete would absolutely sell you out in a heartbeat. Even if he had nothing to gain from it, I I believe. Like, that's just the type of person he is. Because he's deeply insecure um, himself. Right. Um, 
So all of that transpires with Sal. We don't really pick up more of into it until later in the season. This season, you know, Betty is very, very much pregnant. Um, her father comes to live with them. Well, he, her brother and her sister-in-law and their kids came with her father to visit. And then Don made it clear, like, I'm trying to get your dad's house, but you're going to go back to your house, leave him in our house and leave his house alone. So her father, Eugene, came with them, came to stay to live, basically. And he, he and Sally developed a really, really great relationship. Right. Her father basically is, he's had uh, some strokes. He's had mm. a lot of mini strokes and he's not well. And um, it's actually really great because this the first time it's when we really get to see like Betty's family dynamic and her family and everybody's sort of like in denial about how sick her father is. Um, except Betty. Uh, and he is, he's, he's very sick. He's deteriorating mentally. Um, there's a part where he thinks where he mistakes, I think Betty for his wife and tries to like grope her. Cause he's like really confused. So he does need, someone he he basically can't like be on his own anymore um and he can't be with their mom because the mom is like well i think her mom's dead by now yeah, yeah. and the the other wife gloria she took off and, and left him to go to boca raton so yeah so <laughs> he, he needs somebody to to take care of him yeah um he's definitely a, a, a little bit loopy um but for the most part, his cognitive abilities are still there. Um, and, you know, they're living in the house. Everything's fine. But he ultimately he dies. And he dies a, a little while before Betty has her last son, which she names Eugene. That, in, her naming the kid that is something that Don doesn't like. And that terrifies the daughter, Sally. Because according to Sally, he has his name. He sleeps in his room. He looks like him. And I'm sure when he starts talking, he's going to sound just like him. So Sally's actually really afraid of the baby. And Don always hated Betty's father. So he's not cool with his son having that man's name. But Betty's like, his name is Gene. That's the end of it. Stop talking about it. <laughs> and right. we love it. And, we love it. <laughs> and it's and that episode is actually really interesting because it, like... Once again, like, because it speaks to how, like, people grieve. And then it's interesting because it's, like... And then it's also interesting because it's... Um, Sally's grieving, but they don't want to, like, acknowledge her grief. And they don't want to, like... Not, that's, not they, that's not they. That's Betty. <laughs> huh? That's not, that's not they. That's just Betty. That's just Betty. Because Don says, like, she's scared. She needs you. <laughs> right. And like, Betty's yeah, like, like, she's jealous of her baby brother. That's Betty's standpoint. Right. But it's like, it's like they don't recognize or like she doesn't recognize that her daughter's like grieving. And like, I mean, and I think Don is like sympathetic, but he doesn't really quite get it either. He knows that she's scared, but like, I don't think Don quite makes the connection of like, oh, like they had a relationship, she's grieving. We need to help her grieve. I mean, both of them, because when they even talk about the funeral, they're like, well, no, the kids don't need to go to the funeral. But, like, they do, right, to say goodbye. Um, and that's why you have that, like, really thoughty teacher. 
who comes mm-hmm. in. Like, and I mean, the Saudi teacher is the only one that brings it up. She's like, oh, they're grieving. And both Betty and Dawn are like, can you like stay out of our children's business? But she's right, even though she's a thought. Like, that's all I'm saying. Yo, Miss Suzanne Farrell has such a Jezebel spirit. We'll talk about it in a bit. But <laughs> no, you're right. The children are grieving. And I mean, culturally, it depends on who you ask. Some people really are that way. Like, they're like, children shouldn't be in graveyards. Children shouldn't see death. Just tell the child that this person is dead and they're not going to see them again and let that be that. Like, I remember back in Haiti, um, a lot of people didn't bring their kids to funerals, still don't. Um, and it's considered bad luck to had children dress in morning clothes even um you don't do that like so i i can understand this this idea of quote unquote trying to protect the child from this but if they're already immersed in it like sally clearly is um they're gonna need more than just a few conversations she needs her closure so sally's teacher miss suzanne farrell is a jezebel um (laughs) we're gonna talk about it in a minute um she essentially uses uh eugene's death uh, the death of sally's grandfather as an in and inappropriately calls the draper's house to speak with dawn and um pour out all of her grief about her father passing, which is none of his business and is completely irrelevant to his daughter that she's a teacher for. Um, well, no, Sally's grieving because that's why Sally's right, but, acting out. No, 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 no. I mean, what does what does the fact that your dad is dead, Miss Farrell, have to do with this? Oh, because I guess she's like because like <laughs> she can relate or something. I don't know. It's, it, on, to me, it looked like she was just trying to quote unquote bond with Don because she didn't call and said, "Say what can I do to help Sally?" She was just like, "I'm so sorry about earlier." She said, "My dad died, and I was projecting." And I'm like, "How is this any of his business?" And did he ask about this? And why are you calling this man's home? And would you be having a conversation of this nature if his wife picked up the phone, Miss Farrell? Right, right, <laughs> like. The whole thing was just like lines were crossed. And I know, especially in the 60s, uh, a teacher understands the necessity of the de- of decorum. Then later, when he goes to with his daughter um, on a weekend class trip to view the solar eclipse, he's just, you know, being cordial. And Miss Farrell flat out accuses him of flirting with her when he's not even flirting with her. And we've seen Don Draper flirt. He was, ma'am. You know, bless. So she makes the conversation super uncomfortable until she finally they, they, she he, she finally gets to a point where he is now pursuing her, offering her a ride when he sees her out um, running early in the morning, asking her to get coffee, this, that, and the third, and essentially allowing herself to be courted by trouble because that is your student's father obviously nothing good is going to come of this other than that this season um we meet lane price because the company has been absorbed um by a british company and um he's like the department head things are amazing things are spectacular but two things coincide in a kind of hilarious way joan 
finds out after Greg tells her to give her leave that he's not good enough to be a surgeon in New York. And he either has to switch specialties, become a general practitioner or be, or practice surgery in Alabama. Um, <laughs> and Lane finds out he's in India the very same day. One of the secretaries runs over his replacement's foot with a Don Deere tractor. The man loses his foot and Lane gets to keep his job. Truly, a epic com tragic comedy of epic proportions yeah when the guy gets his foot run over it's it's amazing it's i've never comedy uh comedic uh funny um you know it's it's perfect uh well, let's talk about the ableism really really quickly because I, I i feel like this was appropriate to the period but i want to talk about why some things happened then that i don't think would happen now or wouldn't be legal to happen now they bring in this young whippersnapper with, who has degrees from two major universities like the london school of economics and like i don't know i don't want it's not oxford but it's another really like important university he's young he's passionate he's determined he does, can do everything lane does but better he loses his foot and they start, like, they're sitting in the hospital waiting room like he just died. And they're like, well, his career's over now. He can't walk. So <laughs> I guess that's it. What? Right. What? <laughs> the man lost his foot, he, not his brains. Right. Then, And it's interesting because it's like they do, there is like a, yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. But, um... The yeah, the season ends with the him losing his foot, and then because like they're being absorbed by this British company, they actually at the last minute they like pull like a sort of I don't know coup thing, and and that's and they form Sterling Cooper Draper Price. Yeah. Um... That's how season three ends. It's like yeah. it's it's Don, Roger, Peggy, Bert, Lane, and Joan. Um, it's 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 really really great to see because after this, like at at her, this all happens at Joan's farewell party. By the way, she cries, and they think she's crying because of you know how kind they're being but she, we know she's actually crying because she knows she still needs a job and she really loves this job. Um, but thanks to Greg, she can't be a stay-at-home wife and has to go get another job. We see her later in the season um, as the manager at a department store, right? Right. Until until Sterling uh, Cooper Draper Price is formed. Um, this season, we meet Conrad Hilton, a man who clearly doesn't have any friends, and calls Don at all hours of day and night. He really takes a, a shine to Don. And wants to give Don his business, but his lawyers aren't cool with it because Don doesn't have a contract with Sterling Cooper. And Burt Cooper finally pulls his, like, trump card. He knows about Don's real identity, so essentially blackmails him into signing this contract in order to retain Conrad Hilton's business. We see two of our characters at their lowest points this season as well. Well, three of them. Don starts having an affair affair with the Jezebel teacher. <laughs> um, <laughs> Pete, under the pretense of helping, eventually coerces and essentially rapes their neighbor's au pair at um, the neighbor at the apartment building that he got in the city. Ugh, and, that is so and, crazy. 
What I love about this show is that any other show, especially at this period, she would have kept that to herself, right? For fear. And it would, he, he would have never gotten reprimanded for this. But she told her employers. And the man comes over right over to Pizza Apartment is like, yo, you're going to leave my au pair alone. Period. Don't right. talk to her. Don't ever touch her ever again. <laughs> well, that's because... And, like... Because Pete is also just, like, a fucking idiot. Like... I there are parts of Pete that I really identify with but there are other parts of Pete that are like you're a fucking idiot and this is like one of them because he does it like and it's just like it just shows like uh just like I mean granted Mad Men like can be summed up in like one tagline which is like why are men (laughs) like (laughs) <laughs> like why are men like why is that something we do but um this case in particular because he does like he he basically does something under the guise of like he's gonna be not like to be nice and then when it's all finished he's like when it's all finished he then just comes and he goes away and then he comes back and he's like hey i did this nice thing for you show me your tits and it's like wait no like no beat. <laughs> No, like you do that while you're doing the nice thing or like before you do the nice, like if you're going to be like a creep, at least do it correctly. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Let them know you're a creep from jump. Don't switch it up at the 11th hour. Um, Yeah. And it really did seem like he was doing something genuinely nice for this girl. But I'm glad that she told her employer, and I'm glad that he handled it like a boss. He told Pete, stay away from her. Don't talk to her. Don't touch her. In fact, stay out of the building. There's a lot of au pairs in here, and you're going to be, like, breaking up homes. Don't do this. And honestly, just just for her sake, I was so glad that the show handled it like this. Because any other show would have just shown you Pete getting away with this or thinking that he had gotten away with something or that he had gotten over on somebody. Right? Exactly. Um, another thing that happens, another low point for another character is poor Sal. So Lee Garner Jr., the son of the owner of Lucky Strike, comes in to help with the Lucky Strike ad. And he makes a pass at Sal. Like I said, everybody be hitting on Sal. Sal leaves these men alone. He stays in his 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 very, very closed closet. He doesn't invite anybody in. But these men keep hitting on Sal. And this time, Sal is not interested. Like, he tells this man, like, no, I'm married. And this guy's like, so am I, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I think two really great things happen with this scene. We got to see that... Um, that you know gay men can be victims of sexual harassment i think too often on shows they show they portray gay men all as being attracted to every other gay man like there's no discernment if that makes sense every gay man wants to be with every other gay man um that's how they're portrayed a lot on film and television and sal telling this man no essentially cost him his job right and it's uh we hate to see. hate 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 to see that um yeah uh there's that and then um other things that happen in season three um oh like there's uh there's Roger and Jane host this garden party mm-hmm. and uh, we get to see Roger I guess in like full blackface that's interesting um. 
I do think <laughs> there's... Debris brush. <laughs> right. It's like, okay. And uh, I will say that there is, like, the rate... There's a lot... There's lots of casual racism on the show. There's an episode where um, they, like... I don't know if it's... Uh, where Pete is like, oh, who left, like, the Chinamen in my office? And, like, and it's, I think, I don't know if they're actual, it's not actual Asian people in there, but, or it's it's some of the executives or something have dressed up like Asian people or something. And, um, and then they do, like, the sort of racist, you know, uh, you know, whatever that uh, is supposed to depict Asian people. I will say like all the casual racism feels real, feels on point. Yeah. Feels honest. Yeah. I have to agree with that. I think if it's overwrought, then it can be a bit forced, but when you're dealing with white people in all white spaces, I feel like this is just the, uh, this is like an appropriate amount of racism. Racism. To be dealing right. With. Um, because, and I've said this before, I feel like for a lot of white people, racism is a, a bonding activity. Yeah. Um, and especially they're like, racist and they assume that every, that every other white person is as well. Yeah. And, um, and it works and it's not, and even though like you have like later on in the season, Pete sort of Pete like advocates for like marketing to African-Americans for like a pro like one of their clients. This is something that like I, you and I had like sort of briefly talked about, but like, it's not because like Pete is suddenly like trying to be an ally. It's just that like, he cares about money. Like right. um, his, like his quest for like ambition and power and like, and, and wealth has like momentarily overrided his racism, but it, it's, but it's still there. Uh, and it's still deeply intertwined with the things, with things they do. That's actually one of the more interesting things that happens this season as well. Uh, the, the episode between, uh, Pete and these, these clients who, um, who are trying to increase, uh, their sales and, you know, they find that they can do it in like African-American communities, but the clients don't want to do that because they don't want black people buying their televisions. Right, right. Pete's like, Hollis, this is important. Just tell me why Negroes like buying Admiral televisions. That was <laughs> hilarious. Like, he literally cornered their elevator operator. Um, no, but uh, I think the meeting was actually, um, was was quite thought-provoking. Thought it wasn't necessary that they didn't want Negroes buying their TVs. They didn't want to advertise to Negroes um, because they didn't want their brand to be tainted by by um, right uh, Negro buyers. Brand, yeah, right? they didn't want their brand <laughs> so, to be associated with black people, which is something that still happens. Right. They're like, we will take your money. We just don't want to be uh, associated with you, which is right. which is really, really disgusting. And he asked this one question that I've still been turning around in my head because I actually see it play out among black people all the time. And he says, how do you know the reason why these Negroes aren't buying Admiral televisions is because they think that white people love them and they want what white people have. 
And my first response to that was to be very, very offended. But then when I look at some of these brands like Gucci, Versace, even back in like the late 90s, Tommy Hilfiger, who have openly been disrespectful to black people, but black people still consume them because of what that the status that that brand represents. I'm like, is homie all the way wrong? Probably not. That's a good thought. That's a that's a really good. It's a real no. That's really interesting because that's true. Like that's true, and it's and it's weird because it's like it's funny because I think of oh that's so interesting because I think of like Gucci as like a black brand. Like like honestly, I mean because we we pay the bills over there. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Black people pay Gucci's bills. That's all I'm saying. And it's interesting, like. Like Gucci really is something I I I heavily and wholly aso- associate with Black people, um, but it's like just but uh, because you know just because like Black people love Gucci, but it's like does Gucci love Black people? Right. I don't think so. I mean, in the 90s, Tommy Hilfiger literally said, I don't want these Negroes wearing my clothes. But these Negroes were literally walking advertisements for you. And the only people wearing your fucking clothes, Tommy. Right. And it's and like, and yeah, like I said, it's something that still happens. It's like, I remember like when like rap, like when rappers started like talking about like Chris Stahl, like Chris Stahl, like at, at a certain point, like I think sued Jay-Z once, like, and they were like, don't mention our fucking name in your silly little rap songs like (laughs) because they did not want to be associated as like a black brand like at all i mean this is why diddy put out his own liquor this is you know the thing with tommy um is why fubu and baby fat were a thing it was black people saying okay if you don't want us we don't want you but like that fire never really lasts um, the black community has a really bad, horrible habit of not supporting black-owned brands, and and eventually always going back to what wealthy white people tell us is trendy or fashionable or you know elite, right? So when he asked that question, how do you know Negroes don't just want Admiral TVs because white people white people have them? I really had to sit with my feelings for for a minute. <laughs> Right. And it's like, and you know what, but it's like, but using the Gucci example, it's like, and this is where I wish the show would have like spoke on this and they, and and the show doesn't because Matthew Weiner has like, doesn't care about black people, but like, but it's like, I associate Gucci, like I wholly associate Gucci with black people because, and, 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 and Gucci with blackness, not necessarily because like, obviously Gucci like does not because like Gucci loves black people, but because like, you know, like I, like I just sort of said, like, you know, all your, you know, Gucci main, like, because famous people like, because like famous black people like it. And then like that within itself is like, is its own microcosm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's sort of like it's silical, like within itself. So I wonder if it's like maybe they're buying Admiral TVs because like they heard like Eartha Kitt loves Admiral TVs or something. You know what I mean? Right, and it like, could be a it, number of things, right? And, and the show never touches on that, obviously, because the show isn't like thinking like that. Because, like I said, Matthew Weiner doesn't care about black people, but. <laughs> 
it would have been like that would have been interesting because I do think because even like sort of going on like Gucci is continuing my example of Gucci. It's like whether Gucci loves black people like almost doesn't really matter because like I don't because I don't really buy it. I don't really like Gucci because I like Gucci because I like their patterns or I like the designs. It's only because like. I like Gucci Mane or because like Beyonce wears Gucci, you know what I mean? So like, right. Like in that way, does that make sense? No, it does. It does. I mean, I have a love hate relationship with how that conversation with Hollis ended. I do wish it had gone a little bit deeper about Admiral TVs and why he specifically bought one. But at the same time, I was low key happy that he didn't volunteer any more information to Pete because he doesn't fucking owe Pete an explanation for why he has his TV set. Do your own research, (laughs) Whitey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's real. That's real. Like, go do your actual work and let that man do his job. Jesus, that's not his job. He don't work on that on the 12th floor. Hollis just wants to go home. Hollis just wants to get his check and leave. You know what I mean? Uh, Yes, let him do his job. He pushes buttons and he minds his business. Let him do that. Both Carla Carla and Hollis just want to go home. Just want to go home. Leave them people alone. Uh, I live. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, so, um, so th- this season, right before the employees coup, um, Betty breaks into a drawer, a desk drawer in Don's um, office den and finds out about his past. And he is forced to tell her the truth. I'm so glad they didn't drag this out any longer. She finds out that he's Don, he's Dick Whitman. And when I said the rug was pulled out from under her before this time, the earth literally opened up and swallowed her. I know it's like it's heavy it's she I mean she broke she like broke (laughs) poor Betty who already already has like a lot of anxiety and like sort of is an anxious personality like this anxious and depressive personality this like completely tore her apart like how many L's is this gonna have to take before you start doing right um now we learn in season three um, that you know Dick and Anna had a really affable relationship, better than the relationship she had with the real Don, because as she said, he never he didn't really want her. He wanted her sister, who looks like her but with two good legs. Anna has a bad leg because of uh, childhood polio. And they have this really deep, meaningful relationship. And she knows all about his life and he knows all about hers. And he tells her about Betty and how much he wants to be with Betty and how great Betty is. And he asks Anna for a divorce so that he can marry her. And Anna, to her credit, doesn't advise him to tell Betty the truth because she knows that that would just be in vain because he's not going to do it anyway. But as Dick is sitting on her couch talking about how great Betty is, the way Dick talks about Betty, you would think that he'd be faithful to Betty. And maybe he could, but Don Draper don't know how to be faithful to nobody. Um, all, all the effort he had to go through to marry this woman, you'd think he'd do right by her, but he didn't. I mean, right, he doesn't. He didn't, and it, it's just, it doesn't happen. Um, we hate it. Hate, hate it. it so much. But it's, it's what happens. So, so season three... Uh, where are you at? Good, bad, or basic? 
season three, I feel like emotionally took us in a darker place than the previous two seasons, but it was still very good. What about you? Same. I think it's, it's, I think this is the, like we said, season threes are like for shows are, are it. I think this is the strongest season. I feel like it really, it hit me in all the good places just right. there you have it folks this is everything that we think made the first three seasons of mad men good bad basic and absolutely riveting if you'd like to check out the series mad men is currently streaming for free on amazon prime if you're a gbb patron on our top two tiers be sure to check out our mad men spotify playlist if you've enjoyed this episode of the good the bad the basic be sure to share it with your friends tune in next week as we continue to give our perspective of this television icon and cover the back half of amc's mad men in part two of this recap the good the bad the basic is currently streaming on all major podcast platforms so be sure to tune in on your to tune uh, so be sure to tune in to our regular weekly episodes on the go leave us a review on your preferred platform and share our weekly episodes on your social media please follow us at the good bad basic on twitter at good bad basic pod on instagram and get in on our daily content. Also, be sure to follow our SoundCloud page, The Good, The Bad, The Basic, where all our weekly episodes debut first. If you love this sort of content and want more, become a show producer and patron on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash goodbadbasic. Your support allows us to keep bringing you our regular weekly episodes, as well as exclusive bonus material. Until next time, bye everyone!